You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. In this episode, we're continuing a Prova education activity titled Improving Treatment for Type 2 Diabetes, Overcoming Barriers to Optimal Care. Let's return now to presenter Dr. Brian McDonough. So how do we achieve glycemic goals? Well, some of these things we can do, especially in primary care and working with our patients. If you take a look, there are several things that we'd like to do. And one is we want to have lifestyle intervention, physical activity, medical nutrition therapy. Makes sense, right? Takes a lot of time, easier said than done, but easy enough said, easy enough remembered. What about medication? You want to have a treatment regimen. You also need adherence. Remember that. That's key. We're going to talk about this a little later. You also want to address comorbidities. We were talking about that. Is it cardiovascular related? Are there psychological issues? You want to monitor for signs of symptoms of anxiety, depression, denial. What about nephropathy? Uh, you want to check the routine urine, blood pressure, and cholesterol monitoring. Retinopathy. You should have routine eye examinations and foot care. The monofilament exam, the routine exams, they're all very important. Let's talk about lifestyle intervention in a little more detail. Physical activity is very important. You want to engage in a physical activity regimen. If the overall blood glucose is poor, you have to be particularly concerned. If it's over 300, you want to talk with consultants about what we want to do for lifestyle intervention when we engage in physical activity because you don't want to necessarily rush out there when it's in that situation. We want to start to get a little bit more control. So if it's poor, you want to consider achieving some control, as I said, before the exercise started. That's very important. Another thing, and this is important, I don't care what patients I have, I want to start slow and I want to build. Because if you get people out there rushing and doing too much, it's going to hurt a couple of days later, they might pull something, they're not going to want to do it. So if you start slow, maybe five minutes of aerobic exercise, something people can do three times a week, you're going to get good results. And you want to increase the duration slowly. You also want to increase to a goal, probably 150 minutes a week. That's a lot, and that's a maximum. Realistically, I tell people to start making differences in their own life. For instance, if you work in a building where there's five floors, walk up to the top and come down to the bottom. Park further away in a parking lot if it's a safe area, and walk into the store from further away. Make changes like that where you can increase your activity. Because remember, we're talking about the total activity, and we're talking about lifestyle changes. As far as activity routines, you should have aerobic activity. You want to build strength. Now remember, studies have shown, even in the elderly, where you build strength, you burn more calories. It isn't necessarily muscle mass, it's strength. And that's what you're trying to do. You want to get strength, stretching, and flexibility. I am a big fan of flexibility as we get older. Let's face it. All of us are in front of computers, we're driving more, we're under more stress, perhaps people are relaxing, they're on the computer or doing Facebook in the evening. Whatever they're doing, they're not as flexible, they're tight. They need to stretch out. Resistance training has shown to be extremely effective. Not necessarily just lifting tons of weights, but there's things you can do at isometrics. It's all very helpful. And the biggest thing, a simple activity is better than none. Walking, biking, swimming, whatever age you are that's appropriate, you should look at those things. As far as physician counseling on physical activity, routine screening is not recommended by the ADA. You want to use clinical judgments. In high-risk patients, once again, initial short periods of low intensity, slow increase in intensity and duration. 
In conditions that affect physical activity, you want to identify an injury or condition that contraindicates certain types of exercise or activity. What's an example of that? Let's say you have somebody who has degenerative joint disease. They have pain in their knees. Well, you don't want them out there jogging. That's the worst thing they could do. Maybe you have them swimming where they don't have that pressure. That kind of common sense approach. And again, if you have your patients and you know a lot about them, you can take that information, blend it together, and use it. As far as setting goals, you want to set them based on age and previous activity levels. And the most important thing, studies after study have shown communication, education are important, and of course, encouragement. The importance of activity and overall health for the diabetic patient cannot be understated. As far as medical nutrition therapy, we have patients identified with prediabetes or diabetes. Individualized medical nutrition therapy is recommended. These are people who are definitely needing the guidance. We recommend that. Obese, insulin-resistant patient, even modest weight loss may reduce the insulin resistance. It's recommended for all overweight and obese patients. As far as weight loss, you want a low-carb, low-fat, calorie-restricted Mediterranean diet. It's effective in the short term, up to two years. Now, the Mediterranean diet has been shown again and again to be the most effective diet. It can be tough. You have to have discipline, but it is the most effective. Now, patients on low-carb diets, you need to monitor the lipid profiles, the renal function, protein intake, and adjust hypoglycemic therapy as needed. Because remember, with the low-carb diet, you have to look at those issues. Physician counseling. You want to find the right balance. You want to adjust the mix of carbohydrates, proteins, fats. They meet metabolic goals. And consider diabetes patients' preferences to support compliance. Key strategies for glycemic control is monitoring carbohydrates. One of the things that helps with some of my patients, they like almonds as long as they're not salted. With V8 juice, it fills them. It doesn't really give them that much as far as the caloric intake and the trans fats. And one thing I want to suggest and stress is when people ask you what foods you should avoid, I often tell them I believe it's important to avoid foods that you can put on the shelf that just stay there. They can stay there for weeks. Usually that's something that's not good for you because if it stays there without changing, it's probably in that pre-processed mold and it's probably something that has lots of ingredients that are not necessarily so good for you. That's kind of where I tell them to watch out. You can give them specific examples, of course. If you have the materials in your office, they can be quite effective. Now, as far as the glycemic index and glycemic load, you can provide additional benefit over counting total carbs. Saturated fat intake should be less than 7% of the total calories. Trans fat intake should be minimized, as I said. What I really want to do is readjust the LDL and the HDL because that's really what we're going after. And when we continue about support, I think that's essential. I think it's very important for realistic treatment goals. Now, what about consensus recommendations? You know, we've talked about a lot of things. What do you do as a treatment algorithm for type 2 diabetes? Well, when you're looking at it, you want to make sure that you try to get some sort of plan. Is anything perfect? Absolutely not. At diagnosis, there is a well-validated core therapy of going with lifestyle and metformin. Now, of course, metformin may not be the answer if you've got other issues, if you've got kidney problems and other issues you don't want to go there. But we're just looking at a validated therapy that works in some instances. You then can look at lifestyle metformin and perhaps adding some basal insulin, maybe a sulfonylurea. These are things that we're doing. Now, when you look at these and all the other medications that are out there, and remember, we're starting to turn to insulin a little earlier than we have in the past because we know in certain instances there are advantages to that. But what we want to do, whatever the treatment is, is to reinforce lifestyle interventions at every visit. 
You want to check the A1C every three months until the A1C is less than 7%, and then at least every six months. And the interventions should be changed if the A1C is greater than 7%. These things are very important to look at. If you look at the AAC-ACE diabetes algorithm for glycemic control, it's another way of looking at the same thing. But remember, use these as guides. Talk to your patient. Try to figure out what's best for them. The bottom line here when you look at something like this is we have options. And notice when you read about it, certain things are not appropriate for all patients. You have to individualize those treatments. Use what's evidence-based, but then take advantage of it. You kind of build a graph here if your A1C is between 6.5 and 7.5%. If it is, you can go with the monotherapy as we suggested. If after two to three months you're not getting the results you want, you can move on to the dual therapy. Or you can go to triple therapy, which gets a lot more complicated. When I get to this level, this is sometimes when I turn to an endocrinologist and try to get some assistance and, and some help because I may need some suggestions. I don't turn my patient over to the endocrinologist, but I say, what would you suggest at this stage? Obviously, you go a little further, two to three more months, you can go to insulin and other agents. And we obviously have many choices there to go with. But if you are having trouble when you go from that mono to dual and it's still not getting the results you want, that's when you may want to get a little bit of help on the outside. What if the A1C is 7.6 to 9%? Well, things are a little different here. You might want to start with the dual therapy because you've got a bit of a bigger problem. Remember, you're talking about a higher hemoglobin A1C without those results. And you probably, in two to three months, can't just sit there and stay with a dual. You want to move to the triple therapy. Do I go endocrinologist? I certainly can. It depends on your relationship and in your community. If you have experts that you can talk to, that's great. And remember, you're talking about individual cases. So you can talk about a specific patient, and you may apply what you've learned from one patient to another as long as you compare their cases and where they are. Again, because you started with the dual, you get to the insulin therapy a lot quicker when the hemoglobin A1C is higher. Of course, when you get an A1C that's greater than 9%, we've got a much bigger problem, and we have to then look at different issues. You want to find out, is the person drug naive, and what are their symptoms? That's very important. You may have to go to insulin, and you may have to also go to insulin and other agents. But if they have no symptoms and they're drug naive, you may not have to go to insulin as quickly. Now remember, I think there's a very important point here. Insulin is not necessarily bad. That doesn't mean you are defeated. Insulin is one option that's out there. But remember, as you talk to people, different backgrounds, different histories in their family, and different traditions in their culture, insulin can have a different relationship. I know there are many people, especially people who have less education in the medical world, not necessarily less education, but they know that an elderly parent or grandparent has gone to the hospital and shortly before dying, they were put on insulin, and they think that insulin was associated with death. That's a terrible thing and a terrible feeling. What really happened was they were probably trying to control blood sugar as the person was sicker, and they went to insulin, and that was where the association was there. Now, another thing you have to realize is sometimes when people have a hemoglobin A1C greater than 9%, they also have been undertreated. And if that's been going on for a while, that's when you can turn to insulin and other agents as well. These are things we all start to know as we use them, but we've got to be concerned. And we have to know, for instance, when it's contraindicated in liver failure or when there's problems with heart failure, edema, those types of things, because you've got to know the medications. A couple of the issues where it's going to be very important are when we talk about weight gain and we talk about drug-drug interactions. These are things you want to know because you want to know if things are beneficial, neutral, moderate, or if they have those information as well.
Let's take a look for a little bit at comorbidities. First of all, cardiovascular disease. Well, we know that obesity and diabetes are often linked to cardiovascular disease. And we know that cardiovascular disease is the most life-threatening of the diabetic complications. There's been a lot of education in the public now, a lot of advertisement we hear on radio and television, and that's good because it's reinforcing that. Because we know that diabetics are two to fourfold more likely to die of cardiovascular disease-related causes than non-diabetics. Blood pressure is also important to control, and it's a goal that we should have in our diabetics. A blood pressure less than 130 or a diastolic blood pressure less than 80, it's very important to know that we're doing this. So we want to go 130 over 80 is our, what, is our idea goal in diabetics, and we want repeated readings to confirm this. So if we're over that, we are concerned and we're looking at it. So again, blood pressure is important, not necessarily the first one, but you want to watch it over and over again. As far as therapy, weight loss is very important. We know about the dietary approaches to stop hypertension or DASH. Drug therapy can be used, and you want to consider aspirin therapy for at-risk patients. As far as the lipid profile, the adult patient fasting lipid profile should be done annually. The low-risk profile, we want an LDL less than 100 or an HDL greater than 50. Remember, we talked about men and women at 40 and 50, and we want to repeat every two years. Reduction of saturated and trans fat and cholesterol. You want to increase omega-3 fatty acids as far as fiber and plants. These are all important. How about statin therapy? Well, with overt CVD, we should use it over age 40 without CVD or having one or more CVD risk factors. Again, we should have a low threshold for statins because we know of the advantages. And again, educating patients and talking with them is very important. The first and primary goal, lower the LDL to less than 100 and severe hypertriglyceridemia therapy to reduce the risk of acute pancreatitis. And that's important. You will see patients with severe elevation of the triglycerides, which is much easier to say than severe hypertriglyceridemia. And you will see that, and you have to understand that we have to reduce that risk of acute pancreatitis. We'll return with more from this activity of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs> 